This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. We are going to the bank today. We have a bunch of big banks out with earnings. J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, and Wells Fargo. Uh, mixed views, though, at least from investors in terms of those results. Ken Leon is with us, Global Director of Industry and Equity Research over at CFRA Research on the phone in New York. Also with us to talk about those results, Michelle Davis, our finance reporter here at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Michelle, set the scene, break it down. We've talked a little bit about it here um, already, but Set the scene in terms of what we got from these uh, banks. So we saw a, a bit of a, a divergence today. You know, the the lending consumer-heavy banks like J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, the picture wasn't as bright. J.P. Morgan actually slashed its or cut its net interest income outlook um, for the rest of the year and posted its its first drop in that metric. And then its you know typical Wall Street operations didn't do very well. But then Goldman posted a surprise, um, you know, performed better than expected in, in equities trading. And and we found out that that some of that was um, you know them just reaping the gains of a lot of the technology investment that they've made there. So very different pictures. And so you know when thinking about tomorrow, um, Bank of America is one of the banks that people have said is very rate sensitive so it's likely that you know their picture might look more similar to jp morgan's whereas morgan stanley which uh, reports later this week you know they are known as a equity trading you know powerhouse and so if you know goldman was able to benefit there then then maybe they did too all right, so Ken, come on in here because as Michelle just laid out, sort of different stories from different banks. Uh, and keep me honest here, you've got a buy on Goldman, a buy on J.P. Morgan, and a hold on Wells Fargo. Was all of that sort of borne out today? So we knew coming into results today that the capital markets were weak, both for trading and investment banking. Uh, with that, though, we did see strength in traditional banking. Uh, as related particularly to consumer bank loan and credit uh, cards. We also saw um, the banks do a great job on cost control. Uh, in the case of Goldman, uh, which was a beat, um, they're doing it principally from businesses away from trading. Um, their businesses related to uh, investing in lending and asset management were very strong, and these are the growing parts of Goldman. What's interesting here is that these banks were able to perform despite no benefit from net interest income. And the opportunity we have ahead is to gain market share in some of the areas where we're seeing in Europe weakening and retrenchment of some of the largest banks there. Uh, So if we see any rebound in the capital markets, uh, they can get an increased share of the wallet. Um, Overall, Uh, I think the bigger story here is these stocks are basically uh, digesting gains over the last couple weeks. Mm. Uh, They've rebounded to trade just below the S&P 500. And additionally, the bigger news, I think, than the results was the Federal Reserve on the return of capital, which were large-sized returns of dividends and buybacks for all these banks today. I guess what I find, you know, striking, though, is – 
they're still talking about billions and billions of dollars in revenues coming into these banks. So, Michelle, I guess when we look at the big banks, it's a couple things. We want to get an idea of how healthy the business sector is, how <clears throat> how healthy the consumer sector is, how healthy the financial sector, what it tells us about the bigger, broader economy that's going on. What did we get so far, Michelle, in terms of what we heard from the banks? What does it tell us about what's going on? So what we got is that, you know, people have been talking about are we at peak earnings for a while? And it seems like we finally are at a point where we may have reached the peak. And now it's kind of uncertain what's going to happen at at J.P. Morgan. You know, they weren't pessimistic outright, but... uh, you know, Jamie, the CEO, Jamie Dimon, talked about how, yeah, you know, CEO confidence is down because of all the uncertainty related to trade wars. So that's something that's going to, you know, weigh into not only the economy, but also, you know, deal underwriting, that sort of thing. Um, and then just the uncertainty related to the Federal Reserve, you know, rate outlook, that is something that will hit banks from all sides. So it really does seem like an inflection point. And, and banks do have these levers that they've said they can pull, like, you know, cost cutting um, at City, like we saw on Monday. And, right. And, but it's not right. new business. Right. <laughs> That's right. cost cutting. All right. So, Ken, look ahead for us. You heard uh, Michelle talk a little bit about what we have for the balance of the week. Bank of America, as she said, looks like one one we're all very interested in because of that interest rate uh, sensitivity. Also, just the breadth of their uh, uh, business business, commercial business. Uh, what do you expect to see there and from Morgan Stanley? So Bank of America, again, is going to have strength in the consumer bank like we saw today with J.P. Morgan. And that will outweigh any weakness on the commercial lending side, which is very competitive mm-hmm. uh, and also dampering net interest income. Uh, the asset and wealth management businesses, both for Bank of America tomorrow and Morgan Stanley, are substantial. Uh, they also give these banks uh, more predictability and recurring fee income, uh, very different than perhaps Goldman Sachs. So um, we would look for more on the positive side. Um, and I would underscore again that uh, the consumer bank. You know, today, look, J.P. Morgan, net interest income was up 7%. Credit card fees are up 18%. Consumer loan growth up 11%. These are the drivers not only for J.P. Morgan, but what we see tomorrow on Bank of America. And I just want to point out, J.P. Morgan shares up about 1%. You've got Wells Fargo down about 3%. Goldman Sachs up 1.5%. Citi's down about 8 tenths of a percent. Morgan Stanley, which we'll get from, call it little change. Bank of America is down about 1% right now. All right. Well, thank you both so much. Michelle Davis, finance reporter for Bloomberg. She was here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Ken Leon, Global Director of Industry and Equity Research over at CFRA Research. He joined us on the phone from New York City. So a bit of a showdown happening yeah. down in Washington for sure. Uh, a lot of pe- folks flying in from the West Coast. Maybe some of them are local because increasingly Washington is very focused on big tech. So what does it all mean? What are the conversations happening back and forth around this testimony? For those answers, we turn to Jennifer Ree. She is Senior Litigation Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Jennifer, great to have you with us. Thank you. Uh, Now, for some of us of a certain age, we sort of (laughs) think back uh, to 1998, I believe it was. Bill Gates called to testify. And while there's not quite the star power for this gang, big questions, big, big questions about the role of these companies. What did you hear today so far? 
Well, so far today, nothing, because this was supposed to start at 2 o'clock, and it has not started yet. So as of about three minutes ago, when I came down, and that's typical, because these things tend to, you know, the hearings before run late, this run late. But, you know, we do have the testimony that just came up online, and I think, you know, as expected, these um, executives from the four companies that will be testifying, Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple, will be talking about all the pro-competitive, legitimate, um, you know, great benefits and innovations they've brought to consumers over the years, and the fact that they actually face a lot more competition in the various segments in which they're involved than than many who would like to say they're problematic you know cast themselves so so you know we'll be hearing a lot about all the benefits that those businesses have brought to the economy who's there today right it's not the ceos correct or who is it? Right. No, actually, I think that it lends itself to a really good discussion because these are mostly attorneys. Yeah. Right? High-level attorneys. So you have from Google, the director of economic policy. You have Amazon's associate general counsel, Facebook's head of global policy development, and Apple's, Apple's chief compliance officer. So, you know, these are people who understand the law and understand the regulations and the framework with which their companies need to operate to stay legal. Right. And so I think it could be a bit of a more substantive discussion than sometimes will occur at these hearings. Well, well, it's good that you say that. Do we need to have kind of a smarter, deeper uh, conversation to understand if these companies have become too dominant or, you know, and how to maybe further regulate them? I mean, absolutely. Because, you know, these issues are intricate and they're really complex. And they dig into the nitty gritty of how these businesses conduct their conduct their business, just not just the consumer facing, but the B2B side yeah. of it as well. And, you know, antitrust laws are are difficult to understand and it's difficult to understand how a company can be illegally monopolistic so to the extent that we need to understand if there's a problem what the problem is and what the solution is we really have to dig deep so jennifer i gotta ask you because you said hard to understand and that took me back to last summer when some of the Mm -hmm. testimony uh with some of the more senior you know some of the leaders of these tech companies was a little bit awkward to watch because it was pretty clear that the folks questioning them didn't have a full understanding even Mm -hmm. of what the companies did do you feel like lawmakers are getting smarter about these businesses are they asking the right questions well then no (laughs) i i don't think so because you know that this is a really big problem because antitrust is all about the company the way it does its business the markets it's in and the impact of its business decisions within that market and you have to understand the way the market works to understand what the impact is and what the business uh, the conduct that might be in question the reason for that conduct and what it's meant to do and how it might affect rivals and then trickle down to affect consumers so they've got to get to a place where they understand the way these businesses work right and google doesn't work necessarily like apple works exactly. or like facebook works right i mean this these are different we we group them together. We tend to do it certainly as an investment community, but these are different companies. Right. The overall concern is the same, that they've become big, they've become dominant, they're not facing competitors in different segments. But you are exactly right. You know, they are all completely different, other than the fact that several of them might, you know, sell advertising space right. or be involved in advertising. And the kind of conduct they engage in and the markets they're engaged in are different and operate differently. So, and, and, and antitrust is all about conduct. Right. And whether that conduct is 
predatory and exclusionary and rather than having a legitimate pro-competitive business reason. And so you have to dig in to say, what are they doing? What are their contracts? What do they say and why? And it's going to be different for each one of these. Well, interesting, too, that you know this also comes uh, on a day where you had uh, the head of the Calibra business over at Facebook testifying before the Senate <laughs> Banking Committee yeah. and facing some very tough questions, which essentially says, we don't trust you guys uh, right. to do this. So there is this underlying issue of, whether, you know, folks trust these companies to exactly. do it. But I do also wonder, the other flip side of this is how much uh, political contributions right. are now coming from some of these big tech companies. And I do wonder how much of this is show, how much of this will turn out in new regulation and right. new rules. Sure. I don't know. We'll see. And I know you'll be busy <laughs> on all of this. Jennifer Reese, she's our senior litigation analyst, our go-to person to really understand uh, what's going when it comes to anything legal. Bloomberg Intelligence uh, team is what she's part of. Uh, and she's, of course, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I'm your ice cream man, stop me when I'm passing by. Yeah, this story ultimately is about ice cream. It's also about private equity. It's about cold storage. It's about an investment opportunity, be it, uh, yeah, like the song says, it is about ice cream as well. It is in the finance section of the magazine this week, written by reporter Prashant Gopal, who uh, joins us from our Boston bureau. Uh, and, you know, Prashant, Jason and I got a chance to talk with you a little bit earlier about this story. Tell us a little bit about it and what's going on. Um, the private equity element is just fascinating. Yeah, here's uh, here, here. It's kind of a weird corner of industrial real estate that I that I didn't really pay attention to, and I think a lot of other people didn't either. But you know, private equity um, has been, and they they've been buying up these mom and pop um, refrigerated warehouses. Um, you know, in, in the sort of uh, you know series of transactions, I think one one of these two com- these two companies together own now sixty percent of the cold warehouses and one of them bought 36 in the last 36 companies in the last 11 years so this you know it's a very it's happening very quickly all right but let's talk about where this really starts to hit home which is you're messing with some of the big little ice cream makers right i mean that's that's what caught our attention here prashant yeah, you know, it's like everything now. There's there's so much conglomeration, like everybody's getting bigger and um and 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 these companies, these 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 Wall Street companies have scaled up to appeal to the huge manufacturers who bring in huge number of pallets and take them out and they don't need to go in so often to t- to pull out small amounts and ship them out. But small startups like ice cream startups for example, um do need to do that. They often have to go in many times and take out little amounts and ship them out. And it, it, these, the system now, the structure is just no longer really built for that. I want to bring in Jill Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Prashant calls you up and he says, hey, Joel, I got the story about ice cream and private equity. And <laughs> how yeah, did that I mean, go? It's like one of my cover, my little roof lines that I write is Wall Street ruining ice cream. Like, <laughs> you have to know the answer to that. Yeah. I, I think the... The thing that um, really intrigued me about uh, Prashant's reporting here was this. It's, this is a super small niche, right? 3% of whatever warehouse space, yeah. public warehouse space in the country. Like, we're, This is not something that Wall Street in, typically has said, like, I want to invest in that, let alone own it. So, so what's changed, Prashant? Like, why, why do they want suddenly something that's so, such a niche uh, space? Well, I think there are a couple factors. You know, everybody's worried about whether, you know, we have a 
very strong economy, but there's a lot of fear that this is, you know, it's long in the tooth and, you know, a recession may be ahead, you know, at some point. It always will happen, uh, just a matter of when. But when that happens, you know, food uh, is something that is defensive, you know, in, in a, maybe in a sense offensive, too. People always have to eat. So, um, you know, frozen food is cheaper. So even in a recession, people will um, uh, flock to the, the more affordable options. So, the, so that's a strong reason. The other reason is that online grocery sales are, are, are rising as, you know, millennials, you know, like to do everything on the Internet. Um, but older people also who can't easily um, travel, um, this baby boom generation will, may, will likely uh, start having food delivered to their homes as well. But, but this is why the investment guys love it, right? Because there isn't that much out there. So the margins on this, you know, right? Yeah, once you own it, right? you own the freezer. Exactly. <laughs> and, and to build new ones, it's expensive. Yeah, so there's a, there's a serious barrier to entry here. The margins tend to be significantly higher than what they call dry, dry warehouses, sort of those, you know, Amazon-type warehouses that um, that are not refrigerated. So um, it's very expensive to build these facilities. It's incredibly expensive to operate them, especially um, uh, when they when they go vacant. It can it can be a pretty uh, uh, devastating thing to a to a business. But the way Wall Street operates these um, warehouses is incredibly efficient, and they're able to to keep them full. Um, and in part, they can keep them full because they're very these. Warehouses are built very rarely, so there's, there's not that much competition. Right. And, and so, Prashant, like ice cream is obviously how we're going to sell this story right now. <laughs> like it's summer, it's what right? what got our attention. <laughs> but there, you, you talked about the, the frozen, ready-to-cook sort of meals. And when you talk to the sort of the manufacturers about how vulnerable that makes them, what, what, do you, what have you heard back? Well, you know, it's so. For example, so we, let's talk about ice cream. So I, I, I spoke with Jenny's um, Splendid Ice Creams. It's a, a 17-year-old um, ice cream company that invented um, the salty caramel um, flavor, uh, and they have uh, that's really a thing. Struck- you can do that. You can invent salted caramel. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> And, and, you know, they've struggled, you know, all along the way, especially, you know, from the time they were small until now they're a little bit bigger and they're still struggling um, with space. And so they've had to kind of build their own sort of makeshift, what I call the makeshift frozen supply chain, where they, um, you know, they're trying to put in freezers into, into right. dry warehouses and they've beefed up their own storage in their, in their scoop shops. Um, and they're still, and they're getting kicked out. They got kicked out twice yeah. in the last eighteen months by Americold to make room for bigger All right. uh, companies. We're going to leave it there, Prashant. Great to catch up with you, Prashant Gopal, U.S. real estate reporter, Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
It is time for the drive to the close on this Tuesday. Kate Warren back with us, investment strategist at Edward Jones, based in St. Louis, but uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Nice to have you back with us. Thanks, Carol. Um, hey, you know, what's interesting, I was looking at your background. You've got a doctorate in economics. Yes. Economic theories, I feel like to some extent, there's a lot of things being questioned right now, whether it's the Phillips curve and so on. Um, how do you see it? How, is is something different truly this time around when it comes to this recovery in this market cycle and this economic cycle? Well, every cycle is a little different than every other cycle. And the issue in economic theory is always trying to figure out what's general across all the cycles versus what's specific. And I think the main thing people would point to this time is the extraordinarily low interest rates that we've had throughout the entire cycle. And the fact that the Fed and other central banks undertook additional policies when they hit the zero bound in interest rates to try to figure out what do you do to keep the economy going and to jumpstart it again. So I would say that's different. But in terms of the other things, yes, it looks like the Phillips curve in terms of, you know, the fact that we are seeing very low unemployment rates without any wage acceleration. I guess wages are running at a higher rate. Wage, wage growth is higher, but it's not picking up like people would think. Right. That either says the Phillips curve is dead or that we aren't measuring the, the uh, tightness in the labor market correctly. And we have both going on because we have a number of additional measures that people are proposing for what's happening in the jobs market to say, well, it's really not as tight as that one number says. And the way people work has changed a lot. So I would say part of it is what do you keep about the theory mm-hmm. and how do you then measure it differently when it doesn't seem to be doing what you're really looking for, which is helping us with analysis and tools to say, here's what's going on and here's what investors and just regular consumers should be expecting. And so what do you keep? What do you look at with your team uh, and say, okay, we really need to focus on this piece of data or we need to you know, look at the market in, in this particular way? So we look at a wide variety of data. Sure. And I have to say that as an investment strategist, I look at it slightly differently than it's just an economist. Those two are really very distinct roles. Mm-hmm. But what I'm looking at is for investors, we see stocks continue to move higher if the economy's doing okay and if earnings are doing okay. So there's a component of it that's the economy. And there, I look at a lot of different data. But in particular, this long-running expansion, it's been the consumer that's been the main driver. What we're seeing is really different components to business investment with a lot more from technology firms and a lot less from manufacturing than we used to see, which makes sense because the economy has shifted. So it's trying to figure that out. But I would say a lot of that theory still works. It just needs to be modified and understood somewhat differently as you actually look at the data. But that's why we're saying, yeah, it looks okay to us. Well, and you you don't necessarily think that the bull market's coming to an end, do you? No, we don't think the bull market's coming to an end. Uh, There are a few yellow flags. We see mostly, though, signs that economic growth is slowing, and we're seeing lots of indicators that it's slowing, but few to none that suggest we're headed into recession. I would also say the fact that the Fed is now saying they want to sustain the the economy and that they want to be sure it doesn't head into recession is a huge positive in terms of saying a recession is less likely. Mm -hmm. In addition, we're seeing signs of stabilization in the rest of the world. And I think the Fed and all of us worried that what we'd see is a slowdown in the rest of the world that would hit the U.S. economy when it was weakening and perhaps be the catalyst. That seems a lot like less likely today as well. So those are some of the big picture parameters I'm looking at today that say, no, the bull market continues because it's supported by economic growth, slower but positive, and earnings growth, again, slower but positive. Good news for investors. And do you factor in a rate cut later this month? 
Uh, I think it would be hard. Not, let me do the negative. Hard not to expect the Fed is really lying, the, right? That they're going to do it. But it, but, yeah. it, but it is a but, fair question but, because we go back and you. forth here. You're oh, welcome. Abs- absolutely. And I think the other thing is, I, do, look, I didn't want us to beat up Jason too much. You know, <laughs> no, I was a little sensitive know, about this but, Fed but, conversation. But no, I, it's a reasonable question because you never know till it happens, yeah. like everything else. And second, and it changes when you look at the data that's going to come out between now and the end of the month. It's pretty unlikely that any of it would either be so strong or so weak. Right. That we would get anything other than the rate cut that I think uh, Chair Powell had an opportunity last week to indicate, hey, there's more uncertainty that, about this than you think right. in his congressional testimony. No, he was as testimony. clear as he's and probably yeah. going to be. I was going to yeah. say, he did not suggest, you know, maybe sort of I'll the, the by the way, yeah. there, there are these other things we're considering. I think he was pretty clear. So I would be surprised. I think everyone would be surprised if there weren't a rate cut. Now, we all know there's some debate about how much, how much and right. how many more. Right. And I think that's where the bigger issues are going to come in, because if the economy keeps growing, it's very likely the Fed doesn't make as many, many rate cuts as the bond market currently thinks. And I think that could be a source of uncertainty going But I forward. do wonder if we're in this new era and environment, I hate to say, oh, it is different this time around, um, but I do wonder if we are now going to see these longer cycles of kind of subpar or okay growth but they go on for much longer. Maybe we don't hit a recession as often as we used to. I think that's very likely. Uh, remember, though, that, of course, it was the comments about the great moderation yeah. that happened right before the tech bubble burst. Right. But so, so, no, it's never different. But I think the fact that we've seen very slow, sluggish economic growth with an average of 2.3% during this 10-year expansion right. that have meant there's no overheating. When you look around for what's getting bubbly, what could be the thing that's gone too fast and too far that then would trigger the next recession, there are really no signs of anything Credit like markets? that. Credit markets still look very good. And even though companies are borrowing a lot, you know, the headlines that say record borrowing by corporate America, well, the economy is a lot bigger than it was. So all of those are going to be records. And what we're seeing is most companies, not 100%, are still very well covered in terms of the interest coverage. They're borrowing, but they've also borrowed basically to buy back shares and do a few other things that make us a little more comfortable that's not borrowing that they can't pay back. We bring it up there because Jason and I talked about our most read story in the Bloomberg today is about this leveraged loan that collapsed and talks about kind of some of the the risks in the credit market. And this was um, Clover Technologies out in Chicago and just how it in the past week just, you know, quickly kind of came undone and caught a lot of sophisticated investors unaware. And so is that possibly a ticking time bomb? Just got about 30 seconds. I think it's possibly a ticking time bomb, but it's not going to blow up soon. And I think that's one of those things where we've been seeing this for a while. What you need is for economic conditions to weaken or interest rates to rise sharply for those to turn into the actual bombs as opposed to ticking. So think about it as ticking longer. But yes, that's probably the source of what triggers the next downturn, but not yet. A long fuse. Long All right. Fuse. Great. Kate Warren is investment not strategist. Great, but you were great. <laughs> <laughs> great. Can't wait for that fuse to blow. Uh, Kate Warren, investment strategist at Edward Jones. She's based out in St. Louis. Here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Well, it's Wacky Tuesday. I told heading you. up on the close. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.